Welcome, and I just want to say before we start that I feel immensely honoured to have this portion of the Bible story to share with you today. Um, I was honoured that Craig would allow me to do this, and to be honest with you, I think if I was the pastor, I'd be a little bit nervous. I'd be wanting to do this one myself, you know, because he's the high point of the whole Bible story is Jesus Christ. And, and how do you talk about him in 30 minutes? And I know Craig's had this problem all the way through, but I think it's even multiplied here with Jesus because there's so many aspects, so many things that could be said. So I've spent a lot of time on my knees praying and thinking about this and and the scriptures that Matt just read for us really is where God took me. And I approach it with a certain trembling because I know that what I'm going to try and share with you is not possible to really share in words. This has to be a transaction of the Holy Spirit to our hearts. And so I'm going to pray again now before we start. Because Father... We need you. Lord, I can stand up here and I can fill the air with words, but they mean nothing unless your spirit takes your words and makes it alive in our hearts. And that's what we ask for, Father. We ask you to come by your spirit and to touch us, to challenge us, to encourage us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to cover a little bit of ground, and so I'm going to put the Bible references up on the screen. I'm going to take my watch off because I want to make sure I don't run over time because one of the things about the Word, especially the Word Jesus Christ, as John points out to us in his Gospel, is it's just so easy to land on an, an aspect have it warm your heart and end up going down a rabbit trail. And so I don't want to keep you here all day. But these disciples were walking along with Jesus. And how often do we say, wouldn't it be great to be alive when Jesus was here? To be with him, to see him, to hear him, to feel his presence as we walk along beside him. And you realize that back in those ancient days, they did a lot of walking. They walked for many, many kilometers and what are they doing during that time? They're not talking about the rugby or, or what's on TikTok. They're talking about the scripture. You know, in those days, really the scriptures or the first five books of the Old Testament was what they grew up on, is what they knew. And so they, the disciples were walking along with Jesus, but they had a problem. And it's the same problem that you and I have also. They'd memorized, like I said, they'd memorized the first five books. In fact, they'd memorized them as good Jewish boys. They'd memorized them before the age of 10. Can you imagine that? That's incredible. Yes, even Leviticus and Deuteronomy. How many of us have memorized Leviticus? Well, Deuteronomy. This is amazing, the knowledge they had, the foundation they had, yet still they had a problem. 
they knew the repeated failures of their ancient ones. You know, the stories of the Old Testament that Craig has been taking us through. They knew them so well. And yet still they had a problem. They knew that Jesus, the man with them, was a saviour, was a promised saviour. They knew that he was a king, even greater than David, their great king. They'd heard his amazing teachings. They'd seen his miracles. So what was their problem? They didn't understand the full majesty of who he was as the Son of God. And that's not something that can be expressed in words. It's something that has to be transacted supernaturally into our hearts. Now, back in their day, with all that knowledge and experience, you see, there were many messiahs back in that day. And, and the historians say there were about 50 of them around Jesus' time because rabbis would travel and their students would go with them. And the messiahs, a messiah in the, in the Hebrew mind back in the day was a savior, someone who would come and save Israel not so much thinking of their sins or the law, not like we see it, but from the Romans in the time of Jesus. And so people who would gather a following who could maybe work some miracles, see some healings, but had the kind of charismatic leadership that people would want to follow would be seen as a Messiah. So that term in itself was common, but different because we see Messiah, we understand that it means son of God in a way that they didn't. But see, we have the, the value of hindsight because we see the cross and the resurrection, which, of course, they hadn't seen yet. And so, <clears throat> so to begin the process of preparing them for the cross, Jesus asked this question. This is when he turns and really... This is the point where the old starts to fade away towards the new as Jesus turns and sets his face towards Jerusalem. But he's beginning the process of preparing them, not only for the cross, but for the resurrection, but also for the church. Because these were the ones that it was all going to depend on after Jesus had gone. And so he asked in Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? Moses, Elijah? No, said Peter. And Peter was speaking for all the disciples. It wasn't just Peter. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So let's have a little pop quiz Think of something, one thing that Jesus is, who he is, a name, something, so we can finish the sentence, Jesus Christ is. Let's hear some answers, please. Who'll go first? Jesus Christ is, sorry, Savior, yes. Jesus Christ is Messiah. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. 
start saying Jesus Christ is Lord of all yourself because as we say it that way, we're actually praising him. Who's next? The way, the truth, and the light. Anything else? Sorry? King. He's the king of kings. He is my friend. Absolutely, yes. The lamb? Jesus Christ is the lamb of God. Jesus Christ is the creator. He's the good shepherd. We could go on and on and on with the different things that describe Christ. But you see, we're people of a finite mind. We can't grasp who God really is. And so we, in a way, in our thinking, to help us, we slice them up into different aspects. It's like a diamond. If you hold a big diamond up and you turn it to the different faces, the facets shine a different light. And so for us to understand Jesus, we can only look at one side of the diamond at a time, one facet, one light. Yes, he's the king of kings. Yes, he's the lamb of God, but he's also the lion of Judah. You know, and some of these things seem contradictory to us. A lamb and a lion seem like opposites because we can't grasp him all at once. And so we have to look at little bits to try and understand him. But we must never forget that in our finite mind, we're only looking at little bits at a time, not at the whole thing of who he is. And so there's so much more. So in Mark, chapter 4, verse 39 to 41, there's a story about the disciples. I'm just going to turn to it real quick. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now you'd think, wouldn't you? It went completely calm. You'd think the disciples would be throwing up their life jackets in the air and saying, praise God, thank you, Jesus. But no, they were full of fear. They were trembling with fear. You see, this is another facet of Christ, and this elevates his glory far above the way we normally think of him. You know, it's so easy to think of him as gentle Jesus, weak and mild. No, meek and mild, sorry, not weak and mild. And, and, and that's fine because he is, you know, and we see him that way in the Gospels. But there's something about him here 
he calmed the storm and there was something so majestic and glorious about him that these men who not only knew the ocean all their lives, but they'd been walking with Jesus, were terrified. I don't know what to make of that. That's beyond my comprehension. This is our glorious Savior, and he's scaring his disciples witless. You see, they didn't have a category for Jesus. You know, he, he was not like them. He was not like the God that I, they understood. You see, they'd grown up with the laws, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. You know, and that's completely different to who this man who called himself the Son of God was. And, and that's terrifying because it takes away everything that we have grown up with that we've learnt to lean on, that we can understand even what we can expect and hope for. No category for Jesus. The presence of the holy is a category of one all by himself. You see, we like to put people into categories. I mean, think about it. If you... I've had the blessing of travelling a lot... And, and mixing in different cultures. And I'm so thankful for it because I've learned so much from those experiences which were so stretching for me at times. But if you travel to a foreign city in a different culture, especially a busy city like Hong Kong, or, you know, well, Hong Kong will do, we, we have a certain fear because we're in the unknown and the people all around us are talking a different language. And we start assessing people by the way they walk, the way they look. Do they have a smile? Do they look friendly? Are they threatening? And, and we do that because we're so uncertain, because we're a fish out of water. We've been taken away from what's so familiar to us in the way we've been raised. And so we have categories for people. I think that person's a bit scary. They don't look friendly, so I'll stay away from them. And, and this is what we do. We're suspicious of people who are different, who do things differently to what we do. And so I had to learn that sitting on the floor was common, even though it was really uncomfortable for me. And yet I'd sit with other adults who'd never really sat in a chair. And so they'd be uncomfortable in a chair, but I'm sitting on the floor and I'm wriggling around on my backside. I'm trying to remember not to turn my feet towards people because that's a sign of rudeness. And it's uncomfortable. And what about eating with the fingers? That's something. I mean, I remember my mother. She always had the wooden spoon beside her at the table, and if we messed around with our cutlery, she didn't say a word, but we got the whack. And how hard it is now to sit down and eat with my fingers and feel comfortable and feel at home because it's a different category that I'm trying to move in. It's a whole different expectation. I remember early days in Tonga. I used to go along to what they call the King's Church, which was a Wesleyan church, and the king had this, like a box in the theatre, sitting up high, up near the front, 
and he'd sit in there by himself. He might have an attendant standing behind him, but the king would sit there with his arms folded, have a big fan blowing away in front of him to keep him cool, and he'd have his dark glasses on, and only because the sermons were so boring that I think he was asleep behind these glasses. But he used to sit there, and when they sang their hymns, their, their famous Wesleyan hymns, they would sing them sitting down. I remember the first time I struck that when they started to sing, because they sing a cappella, they don't have musicians. I start to stand up, because that's the way I've been raised in church. You stand up to worship God. But no, these people sat down, and I found that most strange. And when I went to visit the king, and I, I became very friendly with him, I used to visit him a lot, I took my Tongan assistant with me, a lady. And as I went into the king's presence, and he's sitting over there, she came in behind me, and the minute she got in the door, she went to the floor and went down on her knees, and she wouldn't look at the king. And I realized that this is the Tongan heart for respect, adoration, worship is to go low. Whereas for us, we go high. And, and how awkward those things are, how different they are. And this is my best attempt to describe to you the category of one, the category of the holy, which is Jesus Christ. We can't just approach him like the facets of a diamond that represent who we are as humans. Yes, we understand gentle. We understand meek and mild. We can understand a miracle, even though we don't understand how they happen. But we expect them when we pray for them. And it's so easy to believe for those things. But Jesus is so much higher than those things. The disciples grew up under the strict law of the Torah. And they would have really struggled to break free from that. They still... They still use the Torah today. I don't know if you've seen the Orthodox Jews, the men with the beards and the black hats wearing their suits. They still live according to the first five books of the Bible. Plus, the Torah now has 613 laws to help them keep God's laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy because they need interpreting. So these Rabbis have made their interpretation and they become an extra law harder to keep. And some of them are just so bizarre. Like lice must not be killed on the Sabbath. Lice. Hebrew t newspapers must not be read on the toilet, but English newspapers are okay. Hunchbacks cannot bend over near the synagogue even if it hurts them. I mean, that's cruel. How, how bizarre. There's a new ruling since COVID that you're not allowed to go into a building on the Sabbath where they use electronic thermometers. And so you're barred from visiting essentially hospitals and doctor's rooms during the COVID pandemic. It's so sad, but they still live that way. And these disciples would still be living that way if they hadn't encountered Jesus. And for us, we're breaking free too. I mean, it may not be as bizarre as these Torah rules, but we're breaking through from 
our category that we were raised in, our category that the world draws us into, we're breaking through to a new category because of this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. True, but not true enough. There was still more to come because back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, after this declaration about Jesus, from then on Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. So they're on their way. And then a week later, Matthew 17, 1 to 8, between Matthew 16, verse 16, and Matthew 17, 1 to 8, if you know your Bible, you know that Jesus, who made that wonderful declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then went and spoiled it all by saying, when Jesus mentioned the cross, be it far from you, Lord. He, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Remember that? So he goes from one extreme to the other, and now we're up to chapter 17. And it's called the Transfiguration. Now, that's an unusual word. It's not a word we would use much in English. The Greek word is metamorphosis, and we use that more, for instance, to metamorphosize is uh, when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Same essence, but different. And, and this is what the transfiguration means. Trans means across. So Jesus went across. Where to? Well, deity actually came across into humanity for a few moments. Jesus who was fully deity, fully God, who suppressed that to allow him to live as humanity, the deity broke through. And these three disciples caught a glimpse of that. This is what the transfiguration was. So it was still Jesus Christ, but he metamorphosized into a different, a different kind of, how do I say it, body? Yes, certainly being no I don't think so he's still the same being but this is the amazing thing well no wonder the disciples were frightened no wonder so what does it mean when it talks about glory well the root word of glory is weightiness it's when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the weightiness. See, another, another category. He's just so perfect and so pure and so big and so vast and so heavy. Not in a negative, heavy sense, but just the weightiness of his glory. And this is what John Piper said. The glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth 
I define the holiness of God as the infinite. Infinite just means endless, without end. Value of God, the infinite, intrinsic, belonging naturally to or essential to the worth of God. So God is infinite. He's essential. And when that goes public in creation, the heavens are telling the glory of God and human beings are manifesting or demonstrating his glory. And we are, even while we're still sinners, we're still demonstrating something of the glory of our creator because we are created in his image. And us, you and I as Christians, we're trusting in his promises so that we make him look gloriously trustworthy. That's something awesome about God and, and understanding his glory and what it means. It's God's holiness breaking through. That's what glory is. And holy means being totally separate, totally other, totally new category breaking through into the categories that we know and we see and we understand and that's what Jesus was doing. Remember in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah went to the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. He saw the glory of God and, and the seraphim, what were they singing backwards and forwards to each other, holy, holy, holy. You, when you read that, you see glory, and then it's holy. And it's this, actually the same thing. It's just the expression of who God is. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy glory. Holy, holy. It doesn't say the whole earth is full of his holiness. It's full of his glory. The majesty of who he is. So there's awe and terror when we see God, like the fishermen in Mark. No wonder they were terrified. There's another time when people were terrified at the glory of God. Well, there were several times when the new temple was dedicated was one, but the main one was Moses when he came down from the mountain and he'd received the law. Do you remember he, he, his face shone and he had to put a veil over his face whenever he met the people because the glory was too much. They, they feared death. And God had warned them that if they saw him, they would die because the glory was more than we can stand. And so my, Moses came down with a, with a veiled face. raises a question, was this glory that we're talking about, that we see Jesus, was it his own glory or was it reflected? You see, Moses was a reflected glory. He'd been near God and some of that shining had rubbed off onto him. But Jesus has his own glory because he is God. It's the essence, same essence of God, so he is God. He had his own glory so why was he talking to Moses and why was he talking to Elijah? Well, you see, Moses was the lawgiver and all of life 
right up to this point depended on the law. It was the law that God demanded from his people that they follow this law, which they couldn't follow. But Moses gave the law and he was also a prophet. Why Elijah? Well, Elijah was known as the greatest of prophets and Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So what were they talking about? Well, in Luke's version, it says they were discussing his exodus. And last week, Craig was talking about, or a week before last, exodus. You see, it just, Jesus was going to have an exodus through the cross. But also, he was going to lead an exodus, which is yet to come. And that involves you and I as he leads his people forward away from captivity, away from the world and the ugliness that we know so well. That's what they were discussing. And I can just imagine Jesus who in the Garden of Gethsemane was on his face praying, Lord, not my will but thine been done. He would have been discussing this with Moses and, and Elijah. They would have been encouraging him this Moses who sinned when he struck the rock and was told, you won't enter the, you won't enter the uh, land that I've given you, which was Israel. Now here he is in the land, up on the mountain. He has entered at last the physical Israel, but there's a new land. He came to talk to Jesus that your exodus is necessary. Be encouraged because where you're going and what you're going to go through is going to lead God's people back to him. And so I can just imagine that scene. I can picture it, the pain of it, the encouragement of it. And then in verse 10 of 17... Sorry, it's verse 9. Get up. Jesus touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. I mean, we read through these things, don't we? We read them and we just skim over and it's like, oh, yeah, that's nice, and on we go. We don't really selah, like <laughs> Craig mentioned last week, remember in the Psalms, It'll often say interlude or silah because we meant to pause and consider and just stop and think. You know, why were they so afraid? Well, how would I feel if an audible voice came out of a cloud? A cloud enveloped me and an audible voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Three times that voice came in the New Testament and every time it was to authenticate Jesus Christ. You see, we won't fear God's wrath. Fear is important and I've mentioned it several times, but you and I, if we follow Christ, we won't fear God's wrath because we're on this side of the cross and we understand that he has paid the penalty. But you see, these disciples didn't know that. All they had was confusion. 
So, <clears throat> Hebrews. This is the turning point in history. All of the Old Testament, as Craig has taken us along so far, now we get to the New Testament, and Hebrews 1, verse 3 to 4, is the turning point. Well, I'll start at Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. Now, that's the disciples. That's where they were at coming up to the transfiguration. Then verse 2 of Hebrews 1 says, And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, he created the universe. God's promised everything to the Son. That includes you and I. We've been promised to Jesus by God as an inheritance for Jesus Christ. The Son radiates God's own glory. That's what we saw in the story of the transfiguration. And he expresses the very character of God. That's what we saw in his whole ministry and teaching throughout the Gospels. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from, his sin, from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God has given him is greater than their names. <clears throat> you can see it's a turning point in history, can't you? You can see the change described there by the writer to Hebrews. I mean, the language, <clears throat> I don't know, doesn't seem that majestic. It's just conveying some facts, some basic facts. But behind that is majesty, is glory, is awesomeness, is something that we can't convey in our words. Paul understood the importance of this in Colossians 1.27. I'll just read it to you. For God wanted them. Well, it goes back, you know, 1 verse 26. The message was kept secret for centuries and generations past. But now it has been revealed to God's people. What is the message? Well, God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret message. Christ lives in you. This gives you the assurance of sharing his glory. Well, here's another Selah moment. Imagine that. It's not just the glory of God the Father shining through God the Son. One day, that same glory is going to shine through us because Christ in you, Christ in me, Christ in us the hope of glory. So that's how Paul described it. And with John, <clears throat> John tried to describe it too. His famous 
words, you know, in a gospel that is just so full of glory and poetry and beauty. And <clears throat> John was known as the disciple that Jesus loved. He was the one who rested his head on the chest of Jesus as they sat at table. He was one of these three. That <clears throat> What wonderful, beautiful words he wrote in the beginning. The Word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. <clears throat> that light is the light of his glory, is the light that they saw radiating from Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the Father streaming his glory. Don't get it wrong. It's not Jesus, not reflecting anything. He is the essence of his Father. This is the Father reflecting his glory through the form of his Son, Jesus Christ to be revealed again to us according to Colossians and eventually in us. There's that verse, for God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. And there's the John 1 passage. Now, here's something Mark Jones wrote. <clears throat> we are confronted with the fact that God is too great for us. His majesty, holiness, power, and knowledge are utterly beyond our comprehension. Because God desires to have communion with his creatures, he condescends. That means he limits and reaches down in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Christ's personal glory is the way we come to know, love, and enjoy God. I would add one word forever to that sentence. The only way we can have any access to God and any sight of God, any knowledge of God, is in and through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Well... Like Moses' day, God's glory is far too heavy for us now. The smallest flash of it would destroy us like a moth flying into the flame. But you see, the whole Bible story from Eden, the big loop up through to Revelation, <coughs> is the restoration of God's people into a place of absolute perfection, glory, joy, <clears throat> peace, love, freedom from pain, freedom from sin, the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. Everything absolutely 100% as God intended it to be without the blight of sin and the effects of the devil. And this whole journey that we're going on through the Word of God 
is the journey to bring us, his people, to where he wants us to be, is back in his glorious creation and his wonderful presence forever and ever. See, God's whole desire throughout the word is that he would have a people who love him, that he can lavish his love upon and nurture and be with and shine upon forever. And that's us. And the glory that he gives us will be so perfected, so free of sin, the glory he gives us will be able to stand his presence. We won't get burnt up like the moth that flies into the flame. Brothers and sisters, that's where you and I are heading. Does this stir your heart? If it doesn't stir your heart, can I say respectfully there's something wrong? The only way we can see Jesus and have our hearts stirred about this is if he touches us. And, and if it doesn't stir our heart, we need to find a place and get on our knees and cry out to him to touch our hearts, to help us to see him, to take the scales from the eyes of our hearts so that we might begin to appreciate the, the, the aspects of this diamond all the different facets and realize the glory of God is something that is absolutely impossible to describe but is infinitely desirable to seek. I'll just show you one last verse then I'm going to pray and we're done. Because I don't want you to think this is just me. <clears throat> These ideas are just mine. I mean, this is absolutely what God says in Second Corinthians 2 verse 18. So all of us who have had that veil removed, and this is what I mean about crying out to God to take the veil from our eyes of our heart so we can have a transfiguration inside and become new creatures in Christ. All of us who've had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. Yes, I reflect it now when <clears throat> I submit myself to him. When I tell him that I love him and I go out every day with the sense that I'm here to serve him, that I don't belong here, I'm just passing through. And, oh, God, hasten that day when I see your glory. That's how I reflect the glory of the Lord today. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So, Lord, thank you every day that I walk with you, that I humble myself before you and seek to glorify you every day of this long and difficult life. I am drawing closer and closer to you. I am being changed bit by bit into your glorious image. That's how we see and understand the transfiguration of Christ in Matthew chapter 17. Let us pray. Father, Father, there's no room for error in this. We have to have a hunger and an expectation for you. Without that, Lord, we are lost. Without that, we are just marking time here. We 
we're just treating you a bit like a Sunday mascot. And Lord, that's not what we want to do. Lord, some of us have had amazing conversion experiences. Others of us haven't. But Lord, none of those things really matter. It's not how we start that counts. It's how we finish. And we want to finish, Lord, with a great sense of expectation and hope in our hearts. Lord, and this is why the, the... this is why the apostles changed the world is because they saw your glory. And this is what they wrote about Paul's letters, so often addressing issues in the church, issues of sin and behavior and church practice. And yet the, he always lifted our eyes to Jesus, to the glory of who he is and what he's done, because Paul knew this was our answer. To have our eyes on Jesus is what gives us hope and expectation, is what will drive us forward to that day when we meet you face to face. And Lord, it's a terrible thing. It's a fearful thing, the thought of meeting God. But for those of us, Lord, who have humbled ourselves now, we don't have to fear it. It's not a, it's not a fear like that. It's a trembling, Lord, but it's not a fear of punishment or a fear of wrath that's been done away with on the cross. And so, Lord, we come to the cross and we humble ourselves And we say, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Lead us on in your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.